1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
0: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter 4.
1: Number 12, Grim Old Place. What's the order of the... Harry began. Not here, boy, snarled Moody. Wait till we're inside. He pulled the piece of parchment out of Harry's hand and set fire to it with his wand tip. As the message curled into flames, I'm Casper Terkyle.
0: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And
1: this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Tickets are on sale for our live shows this fall. We're coming to Denver, Chicago, Austin, Cambridge, and most excitingly, to Orlando, Florida.
0: I don't think it's the most exciting. There
1: are roller coasters. It is the most exciting. There
0: are roller coasters in the other places, too. We're just not going on them.
1: That is a mistake. We need to change our itineraries.
0: I agree. I love roller coasters. Do you love roller coasters? As a
1: kid, I did. And then I went on one, like, maybe six, seven years ago. And I felt so sick. (laughs) Oh, no. But I'm determined that's not going to be the reality in February, When we're at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter.
0: I can't wait to go on a roller coaster with you.
1: Should we wait and, like, go in line at the front and then scream really loud? Yes.
0: I didn't know we had to talk about obvious things. (laughs) So, Casper, as you know, I am a middle sister. And being a middle sister is great because I would get to be, like, old and sophisticated with my older brother. And then I would get to, like, get away with being, like, a little young and, like, kiddish with my younger brother. And so I would say that my younger brother and I still have, like, a pretty – I don't want to say immature dynamic, but, like, jokey dynamic. For example, there is a rule in our relationship that if I look better in something he owns, I get to keep it. That is a one-way rule. He is not approved of this rule. And by look better, like, I'm the only judge. I just decide that's a shirt that I'll look better in, and then I get to keep it, and he gets mad. (laughs) It's fun. (laughs) But – Our relationship wasn't always as great as it is now. When he was little, he would really annoy me. And I had a great tactic as to how to handle it when he really pissed me off. I would say to him, Jonathan, I was about to give you a present. And now that you've angered me, I'm not going to. And for years, he'd get so upset. He'd be like, really? No. Like, no. What can I do to make it better? And I'd go, nothing. And I would leave the room and I'd be like, ha, ha, ha. And it was so satisfying, right, to, like, be angry and to, like, pass off that anger onto another person and be like, the gift I gave you was one of rage. It was great. And it was super effective. And then one day, this jerk Say to him, you know, Jonathan, I was about to give you something great. And now that you did that, I'm not going to. He looked at me and he was like, you weren't going to give me something great. You're lying. And I was enraged. Not only was he calling me a liar, he was right. (laughs) But what I think what I was so mad about was it meant that I wasn't able to find a way to pass my anger on to him, and I just had to hold on to my anger. There was, like, no justice. I'm the decider of justice. And I think we really see that in this chapter, right? Harry is, like, yelling at everyone. He is just trying to pass on his anger onto everybody else, but everybody else is being so sweet to him. They won't take on his anger, which is just infuriating him again and again. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about that. I, You know, what it is that we can do to take care of people who we love when they're angry, or if we think that anger is just like such an unproductive emotion that there really isn't anything that we can do when someone else is mad.
1: The thing that I'm most interested in is how there's some sort of satisfaction with anger, or at least... That we want to be proved right about our anger, that it feels humiliating to be exposed if we're angry in some way, and maybe it's not justified. So I'm really intrigued to see how we can follow anger in this chapter. The word itself appears multiple times.
0: Multiple times. You
1: know it's going to be good. So it's time for the 30-second recap, and I believe it's my turn to go first.
0: This is an example of when people's inadequacies make them angry. (laughs)
1: Me and my 30 second recap
0: fails?
1: (laughs) Rage. Here we go.
0: On your mark, get set, recap.
1: What I love about this chapter is Harry arrives and, like, we don't know what's happening in this place. Like, who does it belong to? Why are we here? And it turns out it's the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix. And Ron is there and Hermione is there. And they're like, I'm sorry we couldn't tell you. And Harry's like, but my feelings! Um, And then we see Molly, who's, like, looking thinner and more worried. And then we hear about Percy. Oh! Love it. Percy has betrayed the family, and we hear about this thing or someone called Creature, and there's all these elf heads, like house elf heads on the wall, and then the paint, painting of Sirius' mother starts to scream. Okay, Vanessa, your turn. Are you ready to roll? Yeah. Here we go. Three, two, one. 30 second recap.
0: So Grimoire Place sort of appears on this block and then they go in and Harry gets reunited with everybody and then we find all these like wounds on Ron and Hermione's hands from with pecking at them and Harry starts like wailing around and Ginny comes in and is like hey Harry like no big deal and then George and Fred are like time is galleons and they are operating everywhere and they've invented extendable ears which Molly has put like a curse around so that the kids can't listen and Percy is a big traitor which we already knew.
1: Can we not talk about that? I'm like, I don't want to talk about it.
0: No, we have to talk about it. Because it's so interesting the way that the parents respond so differently. Yes. Let's just start right there. Okay. Instead of not talking about it, let's just rip off the band-aid.
1: So I want to defend Percy, so I have to go second.
0: Okay, so I'll just lay it out. Everybody thought that Percy was going to get a demotion at the ministry because he was like so busy being power hungry about the fact that his boss's absence created like power vacuum so that he could like take on more responsibility that he didn't realize that his boss was being imperious by a death eater awkward but instead he gets a promotion and the reason that he gets a promotion is because crouch sort of realizes that Percy's someone who's willing to do his bidding and Molly and Arthur have two very different reactions to this. Molly is heartbroken because Arthur and Percy have had this big fight. And Percy is like, I am going to do whatever I can so that the Ministry of Magic knows I'm loyal to them. And that means distancing myself from you because you are associated with Dumbledore. And Molly's just heartbroken that he's basically left the family. Arthur is furious. And this is the first time we've really seen Arthur be angry. And so that, I would say, has outlined things. And now you can defend him because I think that that will be interesting.
1: Let me start by saying I really don't think what he does is right. And he is making a huge mistake here. So what I want to do is just point to how I think his reaction comes from a place of hurt, which the book never really helps us understand. And I want to dig into that. Percy is in a family, kind of like your story, in a middle child position and, unlike you, is unable to kind of shine at home in some way. He's not the strongest. He's not the most skillful. He's not the easiest to get on with. He doesn't have the famous friend. He's not even special for being a prefect or being a head boy. Yes, he's smart, but it seems like his older brothers have been that too. And so I just feel like he's never found his place in the family to be like, oh, Percy's this guy. Like what Percy is known for is being like a rule follower at school. That's very different from like, oh, he's the funny one or he is the cuddly one. But I think at the ministry, like he's found purpose, he's found status, he's found belonging, he's found respect. And so I understand how he can let himself fall into a position where all of that feels like it's on the line. And so to give up on that feels like giving up on everything who he is and having to be subsumed again into this household where, frankly, he's probably never really felt like he could thrive he, he's making the wrong decision here. And he's an adult now, right? We can't forgive him for being just a child, making a bad mistake. I mean, he's
0: 19. But he's still very young. No, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for Percy. I think that you make a very compelling argument. And then I also think, and this is something we're going to continue to discuss, I have no doubt, but like it turns out that harry is telling the truth but it is one person telling the truth and it is a whole authority system that is telling a very different story and you can justify it even with good intentions from harry you can be like i'm sure that harry went through something really traumatic Cedric died, so obviously something terrible happened, and given the past trauma of his family, like, he thought he saw Voldemort, but Voldemort hasn't actually risen, right? Like, there are all sorts of ways to justify these things, and this is a story with a single source, which we are raised to be skeptical of. We want multiple sources for things, and there is a cultish presence around Dumbledore, And so I think that it's actually quite savvy of Percy to be questioning those things. Certainly, we know that he happens to be wrong. And second of all, because of his anger and possibly like his shame around the fact that they grew up poor and all sorts of this like complicated list of reasons, he goes about it in the wrong way. There could absolutely be a way for him to be like, mom, dad, I respect you. I think you are wrong about this.
1: And you know what really just hit me? If I worked in the ministry and, like, I wasn't close to the Potter family and, like, they were just people I'd heard of, I would totally have stayed working at the ministry. All the information that I'm getting through the press, which is supposed to be, like, a trusted, independent, fourth estate source of information, is telling me the same thing. I'm hearing the same thing from the government. You know, my rational brain is telling me the same thing. I can see so easily how we fall into that trap. I remember in middle school, I had a history teacher who said, before you judge people in history, you don't know the context that they were living in. And frankly, I think about our lives right now sometimes. And I think, my God, what are people going to think that I let happen while I was alive?
0: I just think about it every time I step over a homeless person. I just want the pit of hell to, like, open up for me to be swallowed up by the earth and like you can't you can't stop and wonder about the interiority of every homeless person on the streets of harvard square you would never get anywhere and that is just something that we have like culturally agreed upon being okay why have we agreed that that is okay that is a monstrous thing to be okay and so yeah i'm not prepared yet to judge percy for this I do completely understand why Molly is heartbroken and why Arthur is furious. It is like flying in the face of the way that they raise their child. You know, and they are saying, we trust Dumbledore. We trust Harry. And basically, Percy's saying, I don't trust you.
1: Yeah, I think that's what makes it so difficult to reign back in this break that's appeared. You know, Molly goes to London after Percy leaves to try and, and reconcile and and Percy slams the door in her face, which which is certainly unfortunate, but at this point, it's so hard to see like what's the train back to some sort of rapprochement? I actually want to look at Bill and Charlie. these are his older brothers who might be able to get a little closer to him. They don't embody the same parental figures that obviously his parents do. Did they try and reach out to him like? it would be so easy for Percy to construct a story of I'm not wanted anyway because only Molly comes to him. So I want to look within the whole family system, especially the other adult children.
2: Yeah. But I
0: also wonder, like, It's probably good for Percy that he's moved to London Mm. and gotten out of that house, right? He should have
1: moved months ago.
0: Yeah, he shouldn't have waited until it got to the point where he left slamming the door. He should have left when things were still on good terms. Yes,
1: I love this because this is actually so helpful. You know, we can feel anger starting to bubble sometimes. And often, like a toad in a hot tub, you kind of let it get hotter and hotter and hotter until it's far too late. And so I wonder... Could all of them have seen something coming a little earlier? And when anger is rising in that way, like, how can we act on it a little more quickly, even if that just means taking distance and not necessarily solving the issue straight away?
0: Yeah, it's hard because it comes down to, like, resources, right? We don't know if maybe Percy, like, didn't have enough saved to have first, last, and the security deposit before he left. Sometimes we can't, we literally can't afford or, like, life doesn't give us the opportunity to get that distance, We're all a victim of circumstance.
1: That's so true. And I mean, let's talk about Harry, because Harry is obviously the kind of center point of anger in this chapter. He is furious when he sees Ron and Hermione. I mean, there are some really bitter and nasty things that he says. He says things like... did you did you bother to ask Dumbledore at all? And this is after Hermione says things like, have you been furious with us? I bet you have. You know, how are you? Like, she is so understanding. What we talked about last week with compassion, like, she is bringing it all. And Harry is just, like, slamming it right back at her.
0: Yeah, it actually seems to be angering Harry that Hermione is being nice I think that on some level, what Harry wants is for Hermione and Ron to be defensive and have this fight with him. I think in a perfect world, they would be like, God, you're being a baby, so that he could just keep screaming. He has so much anger to unleash, and he hasn't been able to take it out on anyone, right? The Dursleys sort of love his anger because it gives them an excuse to hate him more. So he has not had a punching bag. And every time they are understanding, then he's just a bully, and, like, they aren't being a good punching bag.
1: Yeah, and with the Order who came and rescued him, like, those are not people he would feel comfortable shouting at. And now here finally are the two people who most in the world he would feel comfortable shouting at. And he has a go. And it's just, like, swallowed into this abyss. And he's like, well, that's not satisfying.
0: (laughs) I remember recently I was out with a group of people and one of my best friends was there. And then some other people who I didn't really know were there. And the other people really pissed me off. But my best friend was sort of complicit in it. I was so mad at her. And I will say I'm in my mid-30s. I am not 15. So I'm literally 20 years older than Harry. But if you're 15— You are in a place where you want to yell, and, like, there's just nothing more satisfying than somebody yelling back at you. Yeah,
1: because then you feel it's valid.
0: And if he doesn't get to be angry at Ron and Hermione, then he has to be angry about the fact that Cedric died. It is so much easier to be angry at Ron and Hermione than it is to deal with things that you can't fix and that you can't yell at. He can't yell at Voldemort, but he can yell at Ron and Hermione.
1: God, that is such an eye-opener. I, that makes so much sense to me because how how can you be angry at Voldemort? Like, he's terrifying, right? Like, there's so many other emotions wrapped up in that. And at Ron and Hermione, it's, like, safe to be angry in some way.
0: I mean, don't you get angriest at the people who you're the closest to? Absolutely. It's like, I love you and I'm going to show that to you by you being the person who I give myself permission to treat the worst.
1: Right. Right. It's heartbreaking. The thing that really was interesting to me when he bursts out into shouting is that it's not just about what's happened this summer. He's saying, who was it that saved the Philosopher's Stone? Who got rid of Tom Riddle's ghost? Who saved their own skins from the Dementors? Like, there's this rich pile of stuff that is all coming out in one big go. And so you can see that there's this much bigger trauma that sits underneath the anger of this moment that he just hadn't had the time or the space or the context in order to process.
0: Well, but what he has had is a month totally by himself to, like, work himself up and tell the story, Mm. right? I mean, the worst thing for anger is being alone because you just get to mount a case and nobody is contradicting you. It's like
1: a Petri dish. (laughs)
0: Yeah. You're like, do you what else? Also, (laughs) 19 years ago, I should have been able to see this coming. Like... (laughs) He's, you know, just a chapter ago, we read he's been lying in the dark and he's exhausted from lying in the dark and pacing. He's just been constructing this like opening argument. And Hermione instead is like, I know, do you want a hug? Yeah. So Casper, I'm wondering if you think that anger is ever productive. There was a great article in the New York Times by a woman named Leslie Jameson, who talked about the history of female rage. It's a brilliant essay that I really recommend, but she talks about women harnessing their anger, especially in light of everything that's happening right now, as a positive step in the world. But I'm wondering, like, when is anger productive?
1: Mm. That's such a good question. I definitely think anger can be productive. I mean, thinking about some of what I've learned around community organizing Creating tension and visualizing injustice to create anger, to create energy to use for action is a central organizing technique. Like, I think anger is necessary, especially if we're coming up against enormous structures and systems that are oppressing people in many, many different ways. Like, it needs courage and it needs kind of non rational thinking sometimes, where anger drives us to do things where we just need extra courage or recklessness sometimes because it just becomes impossible to stay within the status quo.
0: I mean, so I think later we see in the books Harry's anger being channeled, you know, with Dumbledore's army, with Hermione's help, into something really productive. And right now, His anger is only destructive. And I'm just trying to articulate for myself when those differences are. And part of it, I do think, is like when you're railing against a structure, when you are using your anger in order to try to motivate a solution rather than to like be in a spiral. I think maybe there's something about anger in community, right? When you're sharing your anger rather than stewing in your anger.
1: Well, there's something about anger and strategy because I think right now, Harry's Just overwhelmed by his anger. There's no sense of containing it. There's no sense of direction to it. Like he's kind of lashing out with this anger. And Hermione and Ron are kind of the punching bags that he can find to like lay into because it takes an extreme amount of emotional maturity to be able to hold and contain and direct anger, to rile it up when it needs to be riled up, and then to be able to manage it when it is getting too much. I mean. I've just been reading about some of the the history of organizing in the very early years of the civil rights movement. The way that singing was used really was like a social tool to manage anger sometimes. It, it was a way to bring a group back into some sense of unity, especially if there'd been real different opinions within the group. Singing together was kind of a way of replacing purpose and unity in the midst of conflict and also redirecting to where the conflict should be redirected to, which is one of the things I think we don't see happen very well in this chapter really from anyone. You know, no one brings up Cedric. No one brings up Voldemort in a way of like, wait, why are we all here? Even though there's a meeting literally of the Order of the Phoenix happening downstairs.
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Casper, something really struck me when reading this chapter. So we are given like a flash of Ron's hand, which has evidence of a deep cut. That is healing and then we are shown hermione's hand which also has like a wound on it harry notices both of these and notices that these are wounds that were ministered by hedwig on the behest of harry to peck at ron and hermione until they had written a sufficient reply to him And what struck me like a ton of bricks is that this is exactly what Umbridge is going to do to Harry later. Whoa. She is going to wound his hand in order to force him to write something that he doesn't want to write.
1: I'd never thought of that before. Me
0: neither. So here's my question. He is physically wounded his friends. We know that we judge Umbridge for what she does to Harry later. It is child abuse. There's a power dynamic at play there. Different situation, different instrument of violence. It is a totally different thing. But my question is, how much do we judge Harry in this moment? Because he has forced Hedwig to become violent on his behalf and to mutilate his two best friends, like, against their will. Mm.
1: Oh, goodness, that is so hard. Um, What's difficult is obviously that it's, you know, that there's literal scars on their hands. Like, Hedwig has bitten off bits of their flesh. But also that, like, it happened when Harry wasn't there.
0: But Harry doesn't apologize. No,
1: he doesn't even want to apologize. It feels good to see them in pain. I mean, that's the kind of twisted logic that happens when we're angry, is that, like... We get so within our own constraints that someone else's pain can only be seen as like, yeah, well, you should suffer too.
0: So here's honestly how I feel. If one of my students was Hermione or Ron and they came to me and said, I have a friend who's just gone through a trauma and is in tremendous amounts of pain and he is hurting me. I would say you have to separate yourself from that friend. I'm so sorry, but that friend needs to be in therapy. That friend needs resources that you cannot provide for him. You are not going to help him, and he's hurting you, and you need to leave him. I would feel comfortable and confident in that advice. My immediate concern would be for Ron and Hermione's well-being to get away from this abusive kid.
1: This is really interesting, Vanessa. Last week's theme was about compassion, which is about suffering with someone else part of me wonders did ron and hermione let hedwig do this like did they want to show harry that like you want us to hurt we love you so much that we will hurt with you i'm not saying that's healthy or the right thing to do but part of me wonders if this was some attempt to show that to him
0: right and i mean it's just like when is that radical compassion and when is that self-harm yeah I mean, I do think it's in the eye of the beholder, but I think that these things look very similar to each other sometimes. And I don't know if I were Molly, and I suddenly saw a cut on Ron's hand, and he was like, I had to show Harry that, like, I wasn't doing this willingly.
1: Yeah, that's worrying. Yeah. Yeah. Vanessa, we've talked about the parallel between Umbridge and Hermione and Ron being hurt on their hands. We've talked about Percy, but it felt like there was also a parallel with Percy in Sirius. The closing moment of this chapter, Sirius is kind of shouted out by the portrait of his mother. You vermin, you know, you scum, like you evil traitor. Because he's made the black family home, this kind of purebred wizard line, this dark lord aligned family he's made his home the center of the resistance against voldemort's rising again and so there's this really interesting connection between percy and sirius betraying their family i just had never noticed that either in this chapter and so like it's just so delightfully written to already see these parallels emerging
0: yeah i think that that is a brilliant and really fascinating parallel
1: Vanessa, we're continuing with Marginalia this week. Mm. And I've turned towards the latter half of number 12, Grimore Place. And in the section where you've written, the door opened and a long mane of red hair appeared. You've written, Ginny's back, smiley face. And then when she starts speaking, oh, hello, Harry, I thought I heard your voice. You write, this is the first time that Ginny is so bold. And I love that because... Especially the way that Ginny spoke really struck me. We've seen the twins be very humorous, like, we thought we heard your dulcet tones, you know, after Harry's been shouting. And it's after Ron and Hermione have been, like, very understanding and softly softy. And Ginny is the one who just kind of comes in and says, like, oh, hello, Harry. Like, she treats him really normally. And having, like, adored and obsessed with him when she was younger, like, now she's walking in confidently, fully in her own Power in a way, yeah. Tell me what what struck you about Ginny.
0: All of that. (laughs) She just like walks in like a minor goddess, and is like, "Oh hey, no big deal." And I feel like we also saw this with Tonks, like treating Harry like no big deal is the best way to handle him right now. And so I think it does show a way that she sort of intuitively understands him. I think it shows that she's grown up. She's like no longer a ten or eleven year old with a huge crush on like the famous guy. I mean, also, like, where has Jenny been? Like, she was in that basement. And then book three and four were like, Jenny who? And I feel like she walks into book five and it's like, I don't know, she got a haircut or something. And everyone's like, who's Jenny?"
1: Do you know what, though? What really struck me, and I think this is different from Tonks, is that I think it matters that she's so earnest. Because it strikes me throughout this chapter that when she's speaking, she's very earnest. Like, she's not funny. And that maybe it's her earnestness is what allows Harry to share his trauma. She's the one we can infer later he really talks to about his sadness and his pain. And it's because she's not trying to placate him. She's not trying to impress him. She's just fully who she is. And maybe that's the invitation that allows him to share. And this moment I think you've picked up on is really special because it it's a new start for them in their relationship.
0: Yeah, it's so funny because I actually think of it a little bit as the power of cool, Mm. right? Because it's not that she's earnest in a doe eyed way. No. And I, I don't think that that's what you meant, but like, I think that cool gets a bad rap, right? We're like, oh, you think you're so cool. But I think being cool and being like open, but not needy right self-sufficient can be a very comforting thing for people because you're not coming across as needing anything if you are self-sufficient if you are cool and comfortable within yourself then they don't have to take care of you which means that they can take care of themselves and therefore be themselves and i think that the fact that jenny walks in so cool into the situation is just so comforting to harry I mean, I just even love the confidence of, like, I've been throwing things at the door, and it's not hitting the door. So, obviously, mom's put up a charm. Like, there's just so much confidence to her, and I love it. And I I just, like, can't imagine how hard-earned it is after everything she's been through. Oh,
1: my goodness. Um,
0: From being publicly humiliated in her own home for having a crush on one of the most famous, like, teen heartthrobs to really having to battle with Voldemort. She's been through a lot, and she just walks in. I just love her.
1: Cool as a cucumber.
0: Yeah. Queen Ginny. How about you? So, Casper, you mentioned this a little bit in what you noticed in mine, but you you underlined Fred and George entering saying, we thought we heard your dulcet tones, and then you aptly wrote the word humor. <laughs> but you putting it like this, I think, really highlights to me the way that Fred and George use humor as a strategy. I've always thought of Fred and George as people who use humor to build relationships and because they like the attention and whatever. But I think that you're pointing to the fact that they use humor strategically, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They're trying to like diffuse the situation because they don't know what they're walking into. They've heard shouting and like, yeah, it just just strikes me that humor is not just something fun for them. I I think it's how they've learned to operate in the world.
0: And it's also something that they really believe in the power of, right?
1: Absolutely. If they could make Voldemort laugh, <laughs> I think they could probably solve a bunch of problems.
0: Right. Or make the world laugh at Voldemort.
1: Which would be so powerful.
0: I mean, that's what they spend the rest of the book trying to do. They try to make the world laugh at Umbridge. And that is their form of rebellion. And I think that that is has proven to be an incredibly potent form of resilience and rebellion. If you can mock something, it doesn't have complete power over you.
1: You know what I'm just thinking about, and which I hadn't seen when I (laughs) circled that word, is that they are actually helping Harry mock his own anger. It's not just other people mocking the anger or kind of diffusing the situation between people. I think they're helping Harry maybe stabilize a little bit or, or come to a place where He's not angry by being able to join them in laughing at the situation, which is, again, like, ugh, genius. Yeah. Especially all of this in the context of the world laughing at Harry. We find out that although Harry's been reading the front page of The Daily Prophet every day to find out, like, has Voldemort risen again? Like, is the news out there? Hermione's been reading the paper much more carefully, and they're starting to use Harry as this kind of shtick as a joke of, like, it's a tale worthy of Harry Potter or, like, Only Harry Potter would believe this. And so to actually laugh at something while everyone's laughing at you, like there's there's some power and dignity in that. And I think the, the twins invite Harry into that in this really lovely way.
0: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey,
1: it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods
0: This week's voicemails from Beth Strickland.
2: Hey, Casper and Vanessa. Thank you so much for the podcast. Um, I was listening today to the episode on belief, and specifically at the beginning when you were talking about belief and doubt and how they kind of go hand in hand, and it reminded me of when I was going through confirmation class in the Episcopal Church as an adult. Um, one of our classes we were talking a lot about the nicene creed which is in the we form is in we believe and i remember my priest talking about how there are times when it's hard to really know if you really do believe that and that's okay and part of the beauty in the um Creed being in the we form is that you go and even the days that you don't feel necessarily like you believe, the community believes for you. And it just kind of struck me listening to the rest of the episode, how so much of the wizarding world is not at least openly expressing that communal belief of Harry so that that makes his doubts all the stronger. I guess just talking about how much the importance of community is when it comes to believing and to upholding people when they don't feel like they might believe. I guess it's a blessing for communities that stand behind people and that are that strong arm of belief when you're feeling like you don't really know if you believe it or not. And there's that community that can say, hey, we believe, we'll believe for you until you can believe on your own. And um, the Order of the Phoenix does sort of become that for Harry. But at the time, you were right, he feels really alone in his depression. So, yeah, that's it. Thanks for the show. Always enjoy listening to it. Have a great day.
0: Casper, I wonder if you remember this, but at our first live show, which – I remember feeling so much anxiety about, like, okay, this is, like, a cute podcast. I don't know if it's going to be a live show. And that front row were, like, all of our teachers. Matt Potts was there. Stephanie Pulsell was there. My thesis advisor. Mike Motia was there. Like, people who I respected so much were in the front row and sort of, like, in the T-shirts. And I believe in their taste so much that I was like, okay, like, We're not going to humiliate ourselves tonight because I believe in them and they believe in me. And Beth, I think you're pointing to that, that, like, sometimes I have bad ideas, but I'm like, but if Casper and Ariana, like, both agree that it belongs on air, then at least it's not, like, a humiliatingly bad idea because I believe in the two of them. I really agree with you, Beth, that you need a community in order to really believe
1: So it's time for us to offer a blessing to someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you giving your blessing to this week?
0: I want to offer a blessing for Hedwig. I mean, I just can't imagine how it felt for her to, like, bite at Ron and Hermione and, like, what that moment must have been like for her. And I don't know if she did it because she was scared to go home to Harry without long letters or if she really believes in Harry— and so I just want to offer a blessing for Hedwig who was put in a really tough situation. And there's just this beautiful moment where she returns to Harry's shoulder and you feel as though, at minimum, she's like, very loyal to this man and, like, really loves him very much. And so I want to offer a blessing for Hedwig who had to do something really complicated and maybe not because she thought it was a good idea. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless?
1: Mm, we don't hear much about her in this chapter, but I really want to bless Molly. Um She's in such a difficult situation. I mean, first of all, she's in the Order of the Phoenix, in this insurrectionist kind of army taking on the most powerful evil wizard the world has ever known. She's also still raising children, one of whom has kind of disowned her and has broken the family in some way. And she's still also in some way responsible for, like, Running meal times and welcoming Harry when he arrives and making sure people have like fresh sheets to lie down on because you know, creature isn't helping. So, I, I, you know, just have like overwhelming respect to, to anyone who's having to play mother and wife and resistance organizer and professional awesome lady all at the same time. So, a blessing for Molly.
0: Amen. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can leave us a review on iTunes. And send us a voicemail about a really joyful experience that you have had reading the Harry Potter books, especially book five. We really want to hear in these sad, difficult chapters. We have to remember to be picking ourselves up. So tell us something happy.
1: Next week, we'll read Chapter 5, The Order of the Phoenix, through the theme of gratitude. This episode is produced by Arianna Nettleman, Kasper Kyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paizau and Nick Boll. Come to one of our live shows this autumn, or join us in Florida in February. You can find more information and tickets on HarryPotterSecretText.com. Thanks for this week's voicemail to Beth Strickland, to Julia Argy, Amanda Madigan, and Stephanie Coulson. We'll see you all next week. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My voice sounds very different because there's some sort of air bubble. (laughs) Oh, my God. That was super weird. (laughs) Wow. I sounded like Snape. Wow. That was cool. I'm glad we have that on air.